Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is John, and I'm an elder candidate here. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Esther, chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through the end of the book. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan. On the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews and their script and their language. And he wrote the, king, the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. 
The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Persandatha, and Delphin, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Arisai, and Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do something to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces and gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces, provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that, had devised, that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that they without fail 
they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people." This is God's word for us today. Thank you, John. If you would pray with me as we get ready to look to God's word. God, we thank you for this story, and we pray you would use it to help us, help us to see that we are your people, help us to see that you are our God, and help us to know that these things are always true, even in exile, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite parenting strategies is to strategically annoy my children for the sake of their spiritual good. Uh, if you'll allow me to explain, usually uh, at least once every day or two, I like to act as though I just remembered something really important. I'll say, oh, hey, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Did I ever tell you guys that I love you? And at this point, almost... As soon as I start the routine, as soon as I get to that pause, they always say, you love us, you love us, we know. And without fail, I respond, oh, phew, okay, when, when did I tell you that? When, when, when did I say that? And they say, every day. Or, or, or as Audrey says, like forever and ever, all the time, right? <laughs> to which I love to say, oh, good, good. Because listen, I never want you to forget it. Don't forget it, okay? I love you. And doing this often becomes helpful later on when one of them is having a really hard time. Once we're able to sort of work through whatever's going on, maybe it's a behavioral issue, you know, I, I sometimes will say, now, do you think I still love you? Will, will this stop me from loving you or lo making me love you any less? And, and they'll say no. And I'll say, good, good, because I don't want you to forget that. Don't forget some truths are so important to remember because if we forget that they are true, could easily cloud and distort everything else in life. Like a child not quite being sure if their father actually loves them, for instance. This can cause all kinds of destructive implications uh, and often does. And as a dad, I realize there are many things that my kids will not always remember or be sure of. Uh, like what they got for Christmas last year, for instance, or 
how we expect them to act in, in this situation or in that situation, or, or even some of the important spiritual truths we hope to teach them about Christ and his gospel over the years, their sense of these things will almost certainly ebb and flow. This is just life, right? One moment they'll be clear, they'll be top priority, and the next moment they may seem a little fuzzy or confused, but there are a few truths that I want them to know all the time, no matter what, uh, because these truths are powerful enough to guide and to carry them through whatever else it is they might face. And one of those truths is that no matter what happens, I am their father and I love them. I'm committed to them. It brings me great joy to tell them this so often that it irritates and annoys them. I love it. This is the aim, in large part, of our passage today as well. To remind us of an incredibly important truth that we cannot forget as God's covenant people. Last week we saw the grandiose pride of Haman colliding with this quiet providence of God. And boy, did God use his quiet providence to really crush that man, did he not? By the end of this story, every bad thing that was supposed to be true of God's people became true for Haman. He had to publicly honor Mordecai, of all people, and he was even hanged on the gallows that he had constructed for Mordecai. It's almost as if Esther and Mordecai sort of trade places with Haman. Everything is reversed here, and in our passage today, we see these reversals only continuing, but this time for the rest of God's people as well. The powerful effects of his providence reverberate out here beyond just Esther and Mordecai to the rest of his covenant people as God protects and preserves them all. And again, in, in all of this, there is something specific God wants his people to remember. So we're going to walk through this story one detail at a time. By the end, we're going to see what that is, what he wants us to remember no matter what. And then we're going to talk about what that means today. So if you would, grab your Bible, whatever form you have it. We've got a lot of work to do. We've got three chapters. The first reversal that we see here is that Esther is given the house of Haman. She's basically put in control of his entire family and their estate. Now, this is a huge reversal because if you remember what Mordecai said to Esther that was going to get her to actually speak up and stand with God and his people, back in chapter 5, she, he warned her. He said, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come for the Jews from another place. But, and this is the key, you and your father's house will perish. Well, not only does Esther survive along with her father's house, but here she's even put in charge of the house of her enemies. This is a, a powerful reversal. And as a show of respect and humility, she puts also a Mordecai over the house uh, of Haman. He's given the same ring that Haman was given. There's reversals all over. But, but this idea of Mordecai standing in authority over the house of, of, of Haman is really one of the most clear reversals. Haman was just bragging last week about all the sons and the splendor of his riches uh, and how much he loathed Mordecai. Well, in here, Mordecai is now responsible for all of his sons and the future of their inheritance. But a big portion of this text deals with the reversal of that original edict that caused this whole mess 
which stated that all the Jews in Persia would be killed in just one day, one specific day. And it turns out, as we look at our text today, that particular truth was hard to reverse. Esther sort of begs the king to do something about this. And he basically says, here, let's write another edict. Why don't you even write another edict that gives the Jews a right to defend themselves? And then we'll send that out. We'll share that one. And he explains why he goes about it that way at the end of uh, verse 8 in chapter 8. And the explanation is that for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring, as the original one was, it cannot be revoked. We can't just undo that last edict. We have to write a new one. And this is more than likely because revoking a royal edict would have called the king's credibility into question. And that is not something that goes over particularly well in a pagan kingdom with a proud king like this one. And so the Jews still do have a problem here at the end of the book. On one hand, when they released this second edict, many people, especially the Jews, were were thrilled. Um, We read that Mordecai also makes an appearance in the capital city. He's robed in these royal garments and the city like just rejoices and receives him. It says that the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. It says that many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Even they kind of wanted to get on this bandwagon for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And so many people, almost certainly the majority of all of this Persian kingdom were pleased with this on one hand. But on the other hand, there were still plenty of enemies who wanted to gain mastery over the Jews. In fact, if you look with me at chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out. Remember, This is the day that they originally cast lots to determine when these Jews would be killed. On that very day, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, what happened? The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. They gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And so clearly, this second edict did not relieve the Jews of all their troubles. There was still trouble for them, plenty of people who were out to get them. But as silent and seemingly absent as God may appear to be in this book, this is where his presence becomes most evident. And really most reminiscent of the rest of the story of the Old Testament, which is filled with these stories of these descendants of Abraham winning battle after battle, war after war, that they had no business even surviving. But listen, in no uncertain terms... We just have to grapple with this. This book ends with a bloodbath. It really does. In just the first day of fighting, just in Susa, the capital city, 500 men are killed, including Haman's 10 sons. Then there's this pause in the fighting. There's this pause in the fighting, and we read that this report of what happened was sort of made to the king. So he goes to Esther, and he tells her, okay, uh, here are the numbers, Esther. Here's what happened. Uh, on on this day. Now, he says, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther asks the king for two things. She asks for another day of fighting 
so that their people could truly keep defending themselves and be rid of the threat. She also asks for Haman's sons to be hanged on the same gallows he was hanged on. Now, at this point, she is probably asking for their corpses to be displayed because they were already killed on the first day. So the king commanded Haman's sons to be hanged on this gallows in the same way that he was. And in the second day of fighting, the Jews killed some 75,000 of those who, quote, hated them. We see that in chapter 9, verse 16. Now, this is where we just have to pause and consider how could God be okay with this? How? It's very common for people to read a biblical story like this one and to think, well, see, how in the world could this God be good if he sort of quietly helps his people to massacre all these Persians? And this is a serious barrier for some to receiving the Bible as truth. And in many ways, you just, we just have to admit and acknowledge, like, that's actually pretty understandable. That's a really good question. But when we do consider the details of this story in the context of the entire biblical story, it does start to become much more clear and at least understandable why these killings were at least necessary, although admittedly still tragic, as violent killings always are. First, it's important to remember in the text this theme of a complete reversal which is almost certainly the primary aim of the author and his main point here. It's not just that the Jews are getting back at the Persians because they're kind of upset with them. It's that God is judging these Persians in the exact same way that they had threatened to harm the Jews, his people. He's taking their utter wickedness and redirecting it back onto them. It even says Haman's wickedness came back onto his head through his chosen people. And notice the Jews did not just go around killing any Persians, but the ones who, quote, hated them, the ones who sought their harm, the ones who tried to gain mastery over them. And so in that sense, this could aptly be described as self-defense. Now, does this mean that as long as we're retaliating, we can be violent with our enemies today? No, it, it does not mean that uh, because we also have to put this self-defense, again, in the context of the entire Bible in order for the redemptive need for it to become clear, okay? Now, remember, the entire Old Testament is the story of God raising these descendants of Abraham into a chosen nation so that he could use that nation to bless and to redeem all the other nations. In other words, in this day, these Jews were God's solution to a sinful world filled with barbaric, raging, pagan nations. And therefore, if one of those raging pagan nations massacred the Jews, as was clearly the plan and the aim here, well, then God's entire purpose and plan of redemption would be thwarted. And the entirety of the Old Testament would come to nothing. Which means there would be no Christ, no cross, no resurrection, no salvation. 
So as complicated as it is, the answer to this question, why would God allow this, is so that our sin could be redeemed, atoned for, paid for, so that salvation could be accomplished. His covenant people were already beleaguered on the ropes. They were not on the best of terms, even with him. They were in exile. And so the question looming large in their minds in this day is, listen, is this whole promise to Abraham thing still even a thing? Does this God still plan to use us to bless and redeem all these other nations or not? Because it sure seems like this nation is about to wipe us off the face of the earth. And then what? Then what? Do you see what's at stake here? Can we be sure of anything from our past? They would have wondered. Was there any point to our exodus out of Egypt? Any need for that law God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai? Any purpose to our conquering the promised land or, or to all those sacrifices made year after year in the temple? Does any of this stuff even matter anymore? Is this God still real and are we really still his people? So the purpose of these two very bloody days was for God to answer decisively all these questions with a resounding yes. Against all odds, he has used in this story his quiet providence to make it very clear both to his people and to the watching world, his plan had not changed. He was still committed to this covenant people and still using them somehow to redeem a new people from among all nations. Church, that is the truth we are meant to read this book and walk away convinced of. That we would never forget we are still God's people, even in exile. That was also the point of this feast of Purim. They established this two-day feast to commemorate these two days of fighting so that throughout all generations, God's people would remember how God had delivered them even in exile. And this is perhaps the final, maybe even most important reversal of the entire book. It is a reversal of feasts. Remember, the book began with a great pagan feast celebrating the grandiose power of this king that God's people were in exile under. Then the whole story turned around in the middle of the book with another feast that was planned by Esther. And then the book ends with this explanation of a Jewish feast, which was passed on in honor of all these events. And as the book concludes, we hear this chorus of reminders, just reminding God's people as they read this book later on, just how important it is to remember and to keep this feast. They're told they firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail, they would keep these two days, that it should be remembered and kept, it says, throughout every generation, that Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease. Even the name of the feast is a reference back to that time they cast lots to decide when God's people would be done away with. The whole point is to never forget. But let's just consider how did things progress for these Jews after all of this happened? 
But what happened next? Did God finally send them their triumphant king with that army of angels to conquer these Persians, bring them back to power, to reestablish his kingdom here on earth with military might and force? No, not, not quite. Instead, what happened was that this family line, it did carry on. But meanwhile, another pagan empire rose up and conquered the Persians, this time the Roman Empire under King Caesar. And eventually, this king that the Jews would have longed for, he did come. Uh, but, but many of these descendants of Esther and Mordecai even, the Jews of that day, particularly those in power and influence, did not receive him as, as king. Uh, they largely rejected him and actually had him handed over to the pagan rulers of their day, accusing him of blasphemy. And, and those pagans, uh, they also clothed this Jewish man in royal robes, kind of like they did with Mordecai here, uh, but in this case, they did it to mock him. As I read this, uh, just picture Mordecai being truly honored by the Persians in royal fashion. In Jesus' case, here's how it went for him in, in Mark 15. They clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then one of the, the pagan rulers, Pontius Pilate, started to kind of second guess what he was doing. And so he dragged Jesus before these descendants of Esther and Mordecai, expecting that maybe they'll come to their senses. John 19, it says, he said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Do you see what happened here? They forgot. They forgot. And so he delivered him over to be crucified. And guess how these pagans decided who would take his clothes home with them after his execution? As they crucified him and dividing his garments among them, cast lots for the garments to decide what each should take. Church, eventually, many of Esther and Mordecai's descendants did forget to rely on the quiet providence of God. They became comfortable here in a sinful world, even in exile, and they turned to the pagan rulers of their day, like Pilate and King Caesar, to find their security. This led them to condemn and to kill their heavenly king rather than honoring and ruling with him. But in the quiet providence of this incredible covenant-keeping God, he used even this horrific event to break the curse of sin, to accomplish our redemptive our, our redemption, and to deliver a new covenant people for his own possession 
free from sin once and for all. Listen, they hung God's own son on display for all to see, much like they hanged the sons of Haman. But praise God, this despised and rejected king did not stay dead. Instead, by his death, he reversed the irrevocable death order that stood against us all. He rose again in victory over sin and death to make us a part of his covenant people. Church, let's never forget it, no matter how dark it may get in exile. So just three takeaways uh, to conclude here. First one is this, let's keep reminding one another. This is in large part the central message of the book, right? Don't forget. Don't let any of God's people forget. We are still his people, even in exile. We are still his people, even in exile. We are still his people, even in exile. Don't forget. See, with every challenge and every threat the church faces, there is also another far greater danger that in our fear, we would forget God's commitment to us that we would take responsibility for our own self-protection and our own preservation and try to fight the grandiose powers of this world with, you know, kind of our own brand of Christian power rather than relying on the surprising power of God's providence. As threats mount for the church, whether in the realm of politics or in culture or anywhere else, it is so important for us to keep reminding one another who we are, what that means, and why it matters. This is the point of the Feast of Purim. Remember that time they cast lots to try and figure out when we were all going to die? That was cute, wasn't it? We have to remember this, right? God's incredible power to redeem and rescue us. It is so important because, frankly, in a dark and sinful world, it's very easy to forget. And if I could, rather than suggesting some elaborate new strategy to do this, I want to simply suggest something that's, that's far more simple and explicitly biblical, and that is simply showing up to church every week. It's so simple, but with this priority of remembering God's covenant faithfulness to his people, it's also so powerful. This is one of the primary reasons we gather here every week. It's not just to do Jesus-themed stuff and to build some sort of big organization and empire. No, we hit pause on our complicated lives out there as exiles in a fallen world so that we can do this here in remembrance of Christ. We sing we pray, we read, we preach, we hear stories of redemption, all so that we can remember who we are and be reminded of God's faithfulness to his people even in very difficult times. Heard some great stories of that just before. Thank you guys for sharing. The author of Hebrews calls us to this kind of regular remembrance in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you catch that? If anything, this gathering becomes even more important with each day we move closer to the return of Christ. 
Let's all think of this gathering here, not just in terms of, of what we benefit from it personally, but also in terms of its significance in the life of God's people. We gather to be reminded even of our place by God's grace in this covenant people. This may sound radical to our modern individualistic ears, but, our committed, uh, but as committed members of Christ's church, if we neglect to gather with our spiritual brothers and sisters to be reminded in this way, we are actually sinning. It's, it's, it's a sin. It's a common sin, uh, but, but a sin nonetheless. Uh, we're doing something that God has told us explicitly in his word not to do. That meets even the most basic definition of sin. Now, this is where that little serpent slithers in and whispers in your ear, did the pastor just say, I can never be sick or ever go on vacation or like get, like get Packers tickets or anything like that because I have to earn my salvation by coming to church every week, right? Did he really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? No, no, I, I, I didn't say that. I'm simply saying that to be a member of this church is to declare that we together are God's new covenant people by faith in his son. And therefore, as in the days of Esther, we should firmly obligate ourselves and make it absolutely sure that we never forget his faithfulness throughout all generations, all of them. When people hear us talking about the church, do they get this sense? Do they get this sense that we just feel grateful to be a part of this redeemed heavenly people of God that he is so committed to? Do we talk openly about the church and our place in the church with real hope and, and faith and joy? Are we engaged in the substance of the spiritual message that's preached and prayerfully considering how it shapes us and how it can encourage others? Uh, we cannot expect anyone will just understand the church and its importance. Increasingly, there are thousands of probably more entertaining alternatives all trying to persuade us it's not, it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and even if we are mature, seasoned Christians, we're susceptible to the same kind of spiritual amnesia that we see in the Old Testament. We need to be reminded regularly of these things. We are still his people. He is still our God, especially, especially when times are dark. So let's keep reminding one another. Next, let's also keep seeking the welfare of all. There are so many details in this story that we can look back on and think, wow, just imagine if that hadn't happened. Uh, in, in many ways, it's sort of an important literary feature of the book. It's how it works. But one of the most important details, to be sure, is Mordecai's care and concern for the welfare of King Ahasuerus back when he notified him about a coup that was being planned back in chapter two. Just think about it. Why, why would he do that? What interest does he have in that? He's in exile. This is the pagan king that oppressed him. But more importantly, how would this have all unfolded differently if he hadn't done that? Because God wound up using that act of kindness in profound ways. It was the king's remembrance of, of that help, which ultimately led him to honor Mordecai in last week's passage, which is what led to all these powerful reverses, one after another. You might say that God delivered the Jews because one of them helped their pagan oppressor. And this theme, and when you, see, when you see that they killed all of the Persians, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. They did not lay hands on the plunder. They did not lay hands on the plunder. The purpose of that is to show the difference 
between the Persians' aim and the aim of God's people. The Persians' aim was to plunder the goods of the Jews, remember, to replenish the treasury. This is one thing that's not reversed in the story. They didn't touch the plunder because that's not what they're after. They're not trying to get at and attack this world. They're trying to preserve God's plan and God's promise. And we see this ethic of seeking the welfare of all really built into Purim. It's a feast about sending food to one another and, and gifts to the poor. And this is the kind of thing that should pour out of God's people as we remember that we are his people. Uh, we also read at the very end that uh, Mordecai sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. I, I think this really underscores the, the posture we're meant to have towards the world around us. On one hand, it's true, it's, it's really complicated, right? Uh, we should expect injustice and opposition, and those who do oppose God and his people will perish. That's very true. It's also clear here. But that does not mean we should adopt this antagonistic spirit toward the world around us. On one hand, sure, it's complicated. On the other hand, it's very simple. As much as this world may hate and resist and even oppose us, God has called us to bless and to serve the world, to, to actively seek the welfare, even of a pagan king, for, for instance, rather than just disdaining him, uh, uh, to actually do good in hopes of making this world work better for everyone. And so in what ways should we seek the welfare of the world around us today? First and most importantly, we should do this by clearly proclaiming the good news that all sinners can be forgiven and welcomed into God's people by repenting and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the work of evangelism and disciple-making and church planting, it's not some other kind of ministry. It's actually the most important sense in which we must seek the welfare of all people. This is why we are recommending uh, Greg and Lisa to be sent out with a team to see a new church planted and raised up. It's not just to increase our tribe out there in the world. It's to seek the welfare of the world, particularly the greater Milwaukee area. Now, we don't make a, a big scene when we seek the welfare of the world in this way. We don't sort of promote it and market it stamp it everywhere. Here's why you should come to redemption because look at all this great. We don't do that because Jesus frankly told us not to flaunt this kind of work. He said not to let your left hand know even what your right hand is doing. This is not about making a splash, but that is also certainly no excuse to do nothing. Uh, in the life of our church, we, by God's grace, we see this kind of welfare seeking taking place all over the place, in particular through foster care, through adoption, through a ministry we partner with called Safe Families. We want to seek the welfare of the most vulnerable in this world, the children, for their sake and also for the sake of the good of the world, for the good of society at large. Uh, we are getting ready to actually start a teaching ministry through the Milwaukee Rescue Mission, where we'll be able to, to lead monthly services and preach the gospel clearly there and just invest in the men and women who are going through that program here in the Milwaukee area uh, that we would do, as, as Paul says, that we would share with people not only the gospel of God, but our very selves, he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, because they were very dear to him. 
but you don't have to wait for us to schedule or program a ministry to live in this way. I'd love to say this in the past, that the church does not exist to create ministry opportunities for Christians. The church exists to equip them for a life that's already filled with ministry opportunities. And so let's simply look around in our daily lives and consider where can I be used by God to seek the welfare of those around me even while I'm in exile, not simply to bemoan the world around me. But finally, and by far most importantly, let's keep longing for a better kingdom. As followers of Jesus, every single Christian throughout every generation is, by definition, automatically in exile. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, we are sojourners. We're sort of passing through a foreign land like Esther and Mordecai because we are citizens of God's heavenly kingdom sent into this world with a triumphant message of our crucified king. We are ambassadors of a kingdom that is not of this world in the same way that Esther and Mordecai represented a kingdom that was not the same as the Persian kingdom they lived in. But the minute we forget this heavenly identity we are so blessed to share in, the minute we stop longing for the redemptive, eternal kingdom that Christ proclaimed, in no time at all, we can be swept up into the grandiose pride and folly of this world, just jockeying with everyone to see who can build the biggest gallows for their enemy. Completely oblivious to the fact that that kind of foolishness and pride often leads to our destruction and not to our deliverance from our enemies. There are countless temptations to do this, this, this these days, temptations for fear of this world to shake our confidence in the God who is delivering us out of this world. But church, the number one thing that this powerful reminder is meant to stir in us is hope. Hope hope that while this is not our home and it may even be a very dark and dangerous place to live at times, someday, soon, we will be home. Someday soon, this exile will be over and we will all get to feast in the presence of our resurrected king as his covenant people. Until that day comes, Let's keep reminding one another that it will. Let's keep seeking the welfare of this world while we're here in it. And let's keep longing for the exile to be over.